Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we are looking at Isaiah once again in chapter 58. I invite you to turn there. Isaiah 58 and 59 are our texts specifically this morning, although there is a little bit of a, a repetition between 56 and 57. Uh, 58 and, uh, 50, yeah, 58 and 59 also kind of pick up on these similar themes. And so uh, we're going to look at that, just one section of it this morning. As long as God's people have heard and, uh, and understood his revealed word, there have been those who only keep that word externally and superficially rather than sincerely and from a heart of faith. Um, the first, think about this, the first offerings brought, ever recorded in Scripture that are brought to the Lord are brought to the Lord by uh, Cain and Abel. You see that narrative in Genesis chapter 4. And, um, and this uh, chapter actually highlights the very point that I'm making. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, Moses records, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruits of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. You might ask, well, why would God reject Cain's offering? I mean, even as you look ahead, under the law of Moses, it was uh, permissible and actually required for them to bring a grain offering. So, so that seems to rule out that the nature of the offering is the problem. It's not so much what Cain brought. Uh, so the question is, why does God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? I think uh, the New Testament actually gives us some inspired insight here. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 11, John actually exhorts believers to love one another. But then he says this, But not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? And John says this, Because his deeds were evil. And that... that um, that verb of to be, that his, that his deeds were, is in, in the imperfect tense. And he turns, it was continually, as in that was the pattern of his life, was evil deeds. And likewise, his brothers, the pattern of his life, was righteous. This is illuminating for us as we understand Genesis 4. The issue appears to be that Cain's offering was tendered superficially. It was offered from a superficial heart, and his heart was, meanwhile, harboring sin and rebellion and living, and his lifestyle was one of living wickedly. In other words, Cain's offering was merely performative. It was simply uh, performative rather than a humble response of persevering faith like we see in Abel. J.C. Ryle, 19th century preacher in England, has a whole chapter addressing this issue of performative religion in his book, Practical Religion. And we just finished reading that in our men's study because it was, it, it was just as much a blight, this idea was just as much a blight on the church in the 19th century as it, as it was, as it is today. He says, quote, real religion is not mere show and pretense and skin-deep feeling and temporary profession and outward work. It is something inward, solid, substantial, intrinsic, living, lasting. We know the difference between counterfeit coin and good money, between solid gold and tinsel, between plated metal and silver, between real stone 
and plaster imitation. And then he proceeds to give a number of biblical examples, uh, kind of tracing through the scriptures uh, of how serious hollow religious activity is and the importance of genuine faith-driven obedience. And then he says this, to say the least, these examples ought to set us thinking. To my own mind, they seem to lead to only one conclusion. They show clearly the immense importance which scripture attaches to reality in religion. They show clearly what need we have to take heed lest our Christianity turn out to be merely nominal, formal, unreal, and base. He goes on to say this subject is of deep importance in every age. There has never been a time since the Church of Christ was founded when there has not been a vast amount of unreality and mere nominal religion among professing Christians. Wherever my eyes turn, I see abundant cause for warning. Beware of base metal in religion. Be genuine. Be thorough. Be real. Be true. Performative religion, in other words, religion that's just done for external show, is an, has been an issue from the very beginning of redemptive history. It is a problem in the present, and it is very much an issue at every point in between. And that is why Isaiah addresses that topic numerous times as we go through the book of Isaiah. And, and, and he does so in an extended way in chapters 58 and 59. And at the end of 53, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, has laid down his life as a guilt offering for sinners. We, we've unpacked that. We've seen the prophetic word, and we've seen how it corresponds to the, in such detail to the gospel records. And because of that, God has satisfied his wrath, and his justice has been, has been upheld. And he has justified, God has justified the many, that is, sinners. And what unfolds then in, in chapters 54 and 55 of Isaiah is God's personal invitation to individuals both within this covenant community of Israel and the nations to repent and put their trust in Christ, to look to him and to his suffering servant. The last week, we reiterated that faith Anchored in Jesus Christ alone is what, is, is what applies his perfect life to our account and, and his atoning death to our account. This is what makes you a sharer in his eternal life. And so things like baptism and church attendance and uh, participating in the Lord's table and even righteous deeds, religious performance in those ways will not get you to heaven. It will not get you into a right standing with God. All have sinned, Paul says, and have fallen short of God's glory. And thus all are eternally guilty. All have, uh, have a need to be justified. And what we mean by justified is just to be declared righteous in order to draw near to and enjoy fellowship and peace with God. Isaiah tells us more than once in this book, in chapter 48 and again in chapter 57, that there is no peace for the wicked. We cannot have peace with God in our sin. And thus, justification is necessary. And it's not earned by our good works. It's not infused into us bit by bit as you participate in various religious activities. That not guilty verdict that is declared over 
your life, that alien righteousness that's granted to you as a gift and bestowed upon you instantly and completely is a totally of God's grace, Romans 3 verse 24. When you come to the end of yourself and you receive and rest in the righteousness of Christ alone, that is what saves your soul. Paul says the righteous will live by faith. And when that happens, when that transaction takes place, for real, it always, always, always results in a changed life. 1 John 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. He's just, that's just shorthand for this is how you know you're saved. If we keep his commandments, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been brought to completion or perfected. So, as justified sinners, we, have compl- we, we now have a completely different attitude about sin and our relationship to our sin. First, we're not okay with it. We said this last week. We're not okay. We don't glory in sin like we did as an unbeliever. We don't give hearty approval to those who do those kinds of things. We have a fundamentally different view of sin. Secondly, we're eager to confess our sin. We, 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 we want to say the same thing about our sin that God says about it that it's wrong, that it's a violation of his law, that it, is, uh, uh, it, it steals glory from him that he deserves in the world. And we come to him to cleanse our hearts. We also, as, an, uh, as a believer, purpose in our hearts to walk in obedience to God's word. Even though we cannot do that perfectly, even though we will fail miserably again and again, true believers fight against sin. They do not give in to temptation with, it, with an unbroken pattern. They submit themselves to the word of God. They do this n- by nature because they have a new heart. They make no provision for the flesh. And as we walk as a believer in Christ over time, we sin less than we did when we were new Christians in Christ. As you grow, your life looks more and more like the Savior who saved you. And your sensitivity to your sin increases And that confirms that you are, in fact, a new creation. Living things grow. This is critical to our understanding of the final chapters in Isaiah. The controlling question of 56, chapters 56 to 66, is this. What should God's people be doing in the in-between time? Between the reality of the cross, which we've seen in chapter 53, prophesied and then fulfilled in the Gospels, What do we do between the cross and Christ's return, which is still future? That hasn't happened yet. And so we have to read read chapters 56 to 66 in the light of that. Otherwise, we'll fall into um, the the age-old question uh, or or issue of performative religious activity. This has been an age-old problem. We'll read commands like we do in chapter 56 and verse 1, preserve justice and do righteousness and keep your hands from doing evil, and we'll be like the Pharisees. Well, what did the Pharisees say? I need to, I need to just work harder and God will be pleased with me. I need to reform myself and to make myself a more religious person and God will be you know, um, impressed by that and he'll reward me with eternal life. But that is the wrong way to read, interpret, and apply these chapters as we come to them over the next several weeks. However, when we read the chapters in the light of 53, in the light of 
a lot of other portions of Scripture. And we see the suffering servant and his substitutionary work, and that work is the foundation of our faith. That is our hope. That is what we are trusting in. Then we read these chapters, and they do, rather than weigh us down with works of the law, they stir us up to persevering faith. We identify ourselves with the justified remnant, and we are those who hear and believe and obey the word of God from a pure heart. And so we want to know, how does God expect me, the justified sinner, to live in this in-between time? How do I, a blood-bought sinner, demonstrate the genuineness of my faith in God's promises? And what we learn is in these chapters, is that the remnant are those who demonstrate the reality of their faith by genuine obedience to the word of God. And that genuine obedience is, incorporates both, both belief and behavior. Belief alone, mental assent, or even agreement mentally is not enough. Behavior alone, just doing the right things, is not enough. God's people are those who do both. They hear and believe and obey the word of God from a spirit of faith and trust in Christ. Chapters 56 to 59 deal with what we ought to be. We said this last Sunday. The whole, the whole three or four chapters there deal with what we ought to be, and it's contrasted with what we really are, who we really are presently. But you can actually break this section down into two smaller sections. Kind of think of that as the umbrella. Underneath that umbrella are chapters 56 and 57, and then 58 and 59. And they each have a, their own sort of focus, their own uh, emphasis. The primary focus of 56 and 57 is on the expected unity and conduct of God's people, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And that's contrasted with the bitter realities on the ground, starting in um, verse 9 of chapter 56 all the way to the end of chapter 57. There is this, um, you know, he's just describing the evil that is amongst them. But as we come to chapter 58 and 59, he is still dealing with this larger theme of what we ought to be over against what we presently are. But the focus in chapters 58 and 59 is on the character of persevering faith, and that's contrasted with performative religion. In fact, he gives us three such contrasts that we're going to see this morning in the text. In chapter 58, all the verses of chapter 58, 1 to 14, we see that first God's people walk sincerely rather than superficially. In verse, uh, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 59, secondly, we see that God's people draw near to God in Christ rather than deal wickedly. And thirdly, in chapter 59 and verse 9, all the way to the first part of chapter uh, verse 15, we see that God's people confess sin openly rather than carry on carelessly. So that's kind of the outline and roadmap for where we're where we're headed this morning. But we want to look at each of these in some detail. The first contrast that Isaiah gives us here between persevering faith and performative religion comes in verse uh, all the verses of 58. 
And that is that God's people walk sincerely, not superficially. The beginning of chapter 58 starts with a, really an exhortation. It's, and God is rebuking his people for their, for their sin. He says, cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Isaiah has a responsibility as the prophet of God. He's a covenant enforcement mediator. That's what a prophet does. And so he is calling them out for their sin to declare how they have fallen short of God's covenant word. This is a rebuke to them. And, and like a trumpet blast, they should hear it loud. He wants them to hear it loudly and clearly. You might be tempted to ask, well, why is God calling them out for their sin? Why is God accusing them of transgression and sins, plural? Especially in light of what he says in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. You say, well, that's odd. You would think that God would be pleased with that. I mean, right? I mean, these, these, are, these are good things. Um, you know, as, as, as we see him there, I mean, they are, they are, they're seeking him day by day. They're delighting to know his ways. They haven't forsaken the ordinance of God. They even seem eager for a meeting with God. He says, delight, they delight in his nearness. So why is God accusing them of sin? Why is he rebuking them in verse 1? Well, all of this prompts a defense, and naturally this kind of prompts a defensiveness on the part of God's people at the beginning of verse 3. He's quoting them. He says, why, this is the people speaking, why have we fasted? God, and you do not see. Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? What gives God, why are you rebuking us for our sin? Right? We, we have been doing exactly what you want us to do. Right? Um, the fast uh, was prescribed for the Day of Atonement. You can see the details of that in Leviticus chapter 16. Fasting was so synonymous with that day of atonement, that that date on the calendar, that the, the fast became synonymous with the Day of Atonement. That was the shorthand for speaking of the Day of Atonement. They're saying, what else do you want us to do, Lord? We've afflicted ourselves. We have kept your law to a T. How have we sinned and transgressed? And God's answer is given at the last part of verse 3 into the following verses. He says, behold, on the day of your fast... You find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? The reality is this, God is not pleased because, because, like Cain, it has all been superficial and external. Instead of humbling their hearts before God, they did, he says in verse 3, what pleased them. And then somehow, in some way, were exploiting those who worked for them. 
Instead of turning to the Lord with a peaceful and lowly spirit, you know, that, which, is, which is the point of the fast itself. The Day of Atonement was meant to a day to grieve over sin and to turn back to the Lord. Their fasts, he said, end in fisticuffs, in, in, in contention, which makes sense, right? If you've got a bunch of hungry, godless people stuck in a house together for the day, right? The hanger comes out, right? God says, if you're just going to go through the motions, do you think I have any regard for that kind of a fast? Do you think I'm satisfied with a mere bowing of the head? That's what he's describing here in verse 5. The mere bowing of a head, the, the, the physical action of, of donning sackcloth and covering yourself in ashes. God says, will you call this a fast an acceptable day, in an acceptable day to the Lord? It's, um, it's sarcastic. See, God is not moved by external acts of worship when they're devoid of sincere devotion. And he's already told us this. He, he told us this back in chapter 1. Remember at the very beginning, as he, uh, in the preface to this whole book, he begins in verse 11, telling them they're not what they need to be spiritually. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Verse 11, says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and calling of assemblies. He says, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate, God says in such strong language, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. I mean, God is not moved by superficial external actions. And this is a rebuke to us. It's a rebuke to us. There are a lot of professing Christians who go to church every week and they sing loudly when the hymns fire up and they pray long and biblical prayers before they, before they eat and they give generously to support the local churches and, and they have all their theological I's dotted and the T's are crossed, but it's all just going through the motions. Their heart's not in it. Their spiritual house is, is like the set of a television show. And from a distance, one day a week, it looks like a real living room, looks like a real, a real kitchen, a real bedroom, but in reality, it's just a shell. Right? Carefully crafted for the performance, and behind it, there's literally nothing. But God is not fooled. God is not fooled. No matter how realistic the set looks, he only is concerned with true heartfelt worship. The spiritual service of worship that pleases God is a life of sincere devotion to him and to his glory. And that comes on the basis of faith. And that's what he gets into in verse 6 and following. That, that spirit of faith demonstrates itself in an obedient life. Look at verse 6. And then God says, you know, this is what you're doing. Now here's, I'll tell you what kind of fast I want. Is this not the fast which I choose? to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, from your own people, to ignore their need. 
God says, if you truly love me and you want to honor and glorify me with your life, you would be deeply concerned for the true administration of justice amongst you. You're not going to call what's false true or what's right wrong. You'll care, he says, for the vulnerable and the needy in your midst. You won't turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to those who are deprived of their proper liberty to treat them like animals. Instead, you'll take action to right that wrong. You will ensure that those things don't continue, and you'll strive to meet those needs. He says that's the kind of obedience, sincere obedience, that brings divine blessing, which he spells out in verse 8. He says, when you do this, verse 8, then your light will break out like the dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, here I am. He then continues to explain the righteous living that is required and the resulting heavenly blessing in verses 9 to 12. If you remove, he says, the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose water does not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations You will be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. It's worth noting what he says there at the end of verse 9. Sins of speech are called out as inconsistent with a heart of persevering faith. The idea here is uh, speaking with contempt. That's what he means by the pointing of the finger. It's kind of a gesture of contempt. If that's the pattern of your life, that's inconsistent with a heart of faith. Paul says in another way, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So so we need to guard our words and be concerned for true righteousness. He then ends in verses 13 and 14 by reminding God's people of the importance of keeping the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, under the Mosaic law, was God's holy day. It was a day once a week for God's people to reflect on the goodness of his creation. And later on, he ties the Sabbath to the glory of their redemption out of Egypt. Keeping the Sabbath under the the Mosaic law was to be, he says, a delight. Look at verse 13. You must call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. It was to be something that is, is joyful. All of this is the fruit of an internal disposition of faith. It's not external. It's not checking a box. He wants them then to do these things. He says, then you will take delight in the Lord, verse 14, and he will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, 
Remember, Isaiah is kind of like the guy in the king's castle. Micah is the street preacher at this time. He reminds us what God really wants from us. In Micah 6, in verse 8, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Right? In other words, all this to say, chapter 58, all this is to say, God is, your heart matters more to God than any physical gift or sacrifice that you might bring to him. True believers act justly. In other words, they act underneath God's standards. True believers love kindness, or your translation may say faithfulness. They treat one another with love and mercy. True believers walk humbly with God. He's their constant companion, conforming their lives to his will. That's what a true believer does. They walk sincerely, not superficially. There's a second contrast that's given to us in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 59. And that is God's people draw near to God in Christ rather than deal wickedly. God's people draw near to God in Christ rather than deal wickedly. The problem of superficial performative religion, just like the problem of open rebellion, is the same. It is the problem of sin in the heart. Look at verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah wants us to know that sin separates. It doesn't just separate you and I from each other. In other words, it doesn't have just consequences in terms of relationships. It actually alienates us from the triune God himself. It's not that God can't hear or isn't able to show his face as if he's somehow not able to, he's omnipresent, he can do that anytime he pleases. It's what he's saying here is that he won't hear and that he, he will not show his face. The problem is with us, not God. It's an absolute statement here. It rules out, in verse 2, it's, it rules out the very possibility of God hearing and showing his face toward rebellious sinners. God's not ruled by rebellious humanity like some, some bratty child ordering their parent around. He stands in judgment over the sinner in perfect righteousness. And Isaiah then goes on to document all the ways that these superficially religious people separated themselves from God by their sinful attitudes and actions. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Uh, It's not the same word as hand that you see in verse 1. That word hand speaks of the palm. In other words, there's a personal connection to that sin. You're choosing to do that. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. Instead, they trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. These are things that, I mean, a snake is synonymous with evil, but even in that day, I mean, Spiders and snakes, and those, these are things that hurt people. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. 
and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. It's an ugly, ugly list. It describes every one of us as we come into this world. In fact, Paul actually quotes these verses, part of these verses in Romans 3, in verses 15 to 17, where he argues that everyone, Jew and Gentile, are under sin and thus God's judgment. He says all our works are works of iniquity. Even good things that unbelievers do, it's not to say that those aren't beneficial in a temporal sense, but they're not good in terms of accepted by God because they're not done for him and for his glory. And therefore, they count for nothing. He says the unbelievers and the superficial believers, they do not know the way of peace. So what hope is there for any of us if our sin separates us from God and there's no possibility of his hearing, there's no possibility of him showing his face to us? The hope is in verse 1. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is, is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Back in chapter 50, verse 2, the rhetorical question was asked, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? And the expected answer was, of course not. Here we have an explicit statement. The Lord's hand, the symbol of his personal action, his ear, the symbol of his personal attention, are ready, he says, to act and ready to listen to the contrite sinner's cry for salvation. God the Father will draw near and will hear the one who repents and turn to him, turns to him. Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel the prophet is an exilic prophet, and he reminds the people, speaking for God, but if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Do I have, this is God speaking, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. Cast away from you all your transgression which you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die O house of Israel, for I have no pleasure, God says again, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And that brings us back to the million-dollar question. How does a sinner approach a holy God and have fellowship and communion with him? Our sins have created a separation. How does that happen? Jesus says it this way in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The door to the Father is the door he has opened through his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message we have been teaching and preaching. Back from chapter 53 onward, we've been hitting that every single week. Every heart that draws near to God, the Father, in faith, enters through the finished work of the Son, being given a new heart by the power of the Spirit. 
There is, there's simply no other way to approach God. And Jesus says, all those who try and enter some other way are thieves and robbers. They're not legit. And that, then for the believer, for us, is how we approach our Heavenly Father. It is through His Son in the Spirit who keeps us. He illumines us so that we understand His Word. He empowers us with grace to live in obedience to that Word. There's a third contrast that's given between uh, uh, persevering faith and performative religion, and that's in verses 9 to the very first part of verse 15. God's people are those who confess sin openly, not carry on carelessly. They confess sin openly, they don't carry on carelessly. There's a shift, if you, if you, you know, when you're reading the scriptures, this is just a helpful Bible study tip. If the, if the voice of the speaker changes, that's significant. I don't know how it's going to be significant for you. depends on the context, but that makes a difference. If you look at chapter 59, verses 5 to 8 are all in the third person. He's talking on a general kind of societal level. But now in verse 9, he's using first person, he's using first person plurals. This is, this is them speaking. There's a shift. When the triune God rescues sinners, they turn to him in a decisive moment of repentance and faith. We just heard Ezekiel call the people to that. But, that's, but that once-for-all turning then sets in motion a lifestyle of confession, a lifestyle of repentance. Not to get saved over and over and over again, because once saved, always saved. But to cleanse the conscience, to renew the joy of fellowship with the Lord who has saved us and brought us near. And you see him doing that Here in verses 9 and following, there's a comprehensive acknowledgement of their sin. This is is right up there with Daniel's confession of corporate sin. Uh, It is right up there with with David and the psalmists. He says in verse 9, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, it's far from us. Here's why. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. And then he kind of summarizes as he leads into what's going to follow. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street. And uprightness cannot enter. Yes, he says, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. I want you to notice the acknowledgments that he makes here in these verses. He speaks of their darkness of heart in verse 9. He speaks of their helplessness in verse 10. Right, Just groping, kind of flailing looking for light but not finding it. He speaks of their mourning of heart. That's what's kind of pictured by this this imagery of a growling bear, a a moaning, kind of a sad moaning dove. 
It, it speaks of uh, mourning. There's a sense of hopelessness at the end of verse 11. We, we want justice and nothing. We want salvation, but it's far beyond reach. He struggles with guiltiness and acknowledges that their transgressions are numerous and accuse them like in a court scene, verse 12. The problem isn't with society. The problem isn't with your spouse. The problem isn't with your parents. The problem lies squarely with the heart. It's with the heart. And a true believer acknowledges their sin and calls it what it is. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't shift the blame for their sin onto others. They don't go about their lives believing and acting as if they have no sin. John says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've all met professing Christians who are never wrong. We've all met professing Christians who never humble themselves to acknowledge how far short they fall of God righteous, God's righteous standards. When, when you confront those kind of people about obvious sin, there's always some justification for why their actions were necessary, why your understanding of the situation is wrong, you're misinterpreting. Right? Listen, that's just not compatible with new life in Christ. That kind of a habitual rejection of sin and, 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 and one's shortcomings is not compatible with a new heart. 1 John 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. He says, and his word is not in us. But the one who has persevering faith, listen, they know all too well what they aren't before a holy God. And when they're confronted with the truth, whether directly through the ministry of the confrontation that another believer might bring to them, or indirectly through the ministry of the word and the spirit and its convicting um, efforts on the conscience, they will say the same thing about their sin that God does when they stare it blindly in the face. God's people are those who confess their sin and not carry on carelessly, callously. So the question then that the text asks of you and of me and every one of us this morning is this, is your life one of persevering faith or performative religion? Do you walk sincerely? Uh, do you draw near in communion and fellowship with the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit? Do you confess sin Openly, saying the same thing about it that God does. Or is your life one of superficial religious activity? Going through the motions, checking the boxes, coming to church every week, going home, but then dealing wickedly with others in thought and deed, separating yourself again and again from the God who stands ready to save and draw you near. Or is your life one of refusing to acknowledge sin and call it what it truly is? Because one life has an eternal reward and a, and a great blessing that's in, that comes. And another comes with a terrifying expectation of wrath and judgment. And so I'll leave you with Ryle's con 
searching remarks at the end of his chapter on this issue. He says, is your own religion real or unreal? Genuine or base? I do not ask what you think about others. Perhaps you may see many hypocrites around you. You may be able to point out many who have no reality at all. He says, this is not the question. You may be right in your, in your opinion about others. He says, but I want to know about you. Is your own Christianity real and true, or is it nominal and base? If you love life, he says, do not turn away from the question which is before you. The time must come when the whole truth will be known. The judgment day will reveal every man's religion of what sort it is. If you have common prudence, sense, judgment, consider what I say. Sit down quietly today and examine yourself. Find out the real character of your religion. With the Bible in your hand, he says, and honesty in your heart, the thing may be known and then resolve to find out. An unreal Christianity is sure to fail a man at the last. He says it will wear out, it will break down, it will leave its possessor like a wreck on a sandbank, high and dry, forsaken by the tide. But to all who have manfully taken up the cross and are honestly following Christ, I exhort them to persevere and not to be moved by difficulties and opposition. Yes, he says you may find few with you, and many against you. You may often hear hard things said of you. He says, heed it not. Turn a deaf ear to remarks of this kind. He says, impress on. That's the exhortation that Isaiah is giving us this morning. Search our hearts. If you're in the faith, press on. If you're not, repent and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of the prophetic word. There is no dancing around what Isaiah is getting at in these portions of the book. They search our hearts. The scripture, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Like a scalpel, it cuts precisely, but not to, not to mar and wound and, and to defile, but to heal. And Lord, we pray that you would allow your word to do its searching and healing work. May it cut us where it needs to cut us, Lord. May it expose those things that need to be exposed, that we might cast them aside, that we might turn and live and make our calling and election sure. Lord, we thank you for this word. Most of all, we thank you for the work of your son. And it's to his table that we now turn in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.